1: If you were to define, if I were to go around and ask you what a lie was, I would hope I'd get a a consistent answer, but the reality is a lie is the opposite of the truth. Would that be correct? Those of you online, if I asked you what a lie is, would you tell me that it's the opposite of the truth? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So... If truth is the opposite of a lie, then what is truth? This is so ironic because the class that I was helping to teach along with Sarah DeFriscia this morning is called The Truth Project. And that was the first lesson we talked about today is what is truth? It's the one question that Jesus who's standing before Pilate after having been arrested by the temple guards and is on the brink really of going to the cross Pilate is questioning him, what is the truth? Or, or no, no, no. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives this answer that is more than just powerful, it's more than just profound. He said, He came to testify to the truth. And he goes on to say, rather stark and defining words, that those who believe in the truth, follow me. That's a pretty bold statement. Jesus never came out and said that he was just a good teacher or some kind of spiritual guru or prophet as some in our culture claim that he is. Oh yeah, he's a really good guy. But he's more than just a good guy because the kind of things that that man said would make him, as C.S. Lewis wrote, either a liar, a lunatic, or something worse, a demon of hell itself. So what is a lie? A lie is the complete absence of truth. Well, what if I tell something that's partially true? We talked about Abraham last week. We're gonna be talking about Isaac this week in Genesis 26, but last week in Genesis 20, and this is the second time Abraham did it, To King Abimelech, in the region of where the Philistines would have been on the coastal region of the Mediterranean Sea, he had Sarah lie about being his wife. And now this had happened in Genesis chapter 12, just following, not too long after, he had received a call of God to become a man Through whom a nation of descendants would spring that would outnumber the stars of the sky, that would be God's representatives to the world. He lied to Pharaoh, saying that Sarah was his sister. Then he lies to Abimelech, saying that Sarah was his sister. But you know the irony is, we read in Genesis 20 that she technically was his sister. She was his half-sister. They had the same father. I know that sounds freaky today. And some of, I said, I'm not going to go there this week. My wife will beat me up. But you know what I'm talking about. We're not siblings, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. It was just too good. But, hey, we're from Kentucky. (laughs) Well, we are. We are. Keeping it in the family. That's what they did back in the day. All right, boom, where's my drummer anyway? So here's the reality. She technically was his sister because they shared the same father. So was he really lying? Is a partial truth not true? See, this is where we find ourselves in our culture, isn't it? So the question is, what is truth? What is a lie? And is it wrong to tell even little white lies? Because I've heard even Christians say, well, it really depends, right? Well, what if it would save your family to tell a lie? See, now we're messing with some territory we don't like to think about or talk about especially within the church, but should not the church have answers to these questions or at least point to the one who is the answer-bearer of all questions? So the question is, what is truth? You can't know what truth is unless you know who the truth is. And again, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, Jesus claimed to be the truth. So either he's crazy and we don't believe a word he says or we believe that what he says was accurate, meaning that he is the truth. So then what does that mean? What are the ramifications of Jesus being the truth to us today? If Jesus is truth and Jesus was fully God, then that means God is truth, yes, Father, Son, and Spirit encapsulated in the Godhead, what we call the Trinity, the fullness of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God is the full presence of truth. That's why it's oftentimes equated to light. When do most robberies happen today? Well, it depends on which city you're in because it's happening in broad daylight these days because nobody's getting punished, but that's a different topic for a different time. But normally, if somebody wants to do something corrupt, bad, or horribly wrong, they do it under the darkness of night. Why is that? Because nobody, they don't want anybody to see, because there's a fear of punishment. Wow, that's scriptural. I could preach that. 1 John, that's what it says. We don't fear love, we don't fear the truth. Why? Because if we're living in the truth, we have no fear of punishment. But I see a lot of Christians today, and this is not just a service for believers in Christ. This service is for anybody who's stepped foot in this room, anybody who's watching online, who may be wondering, seeking, searching, is there even such thing as truth? What is truth? Is it truly relative? And is it something that I could stake my life on? The church has done a poor job in the past 40 to 50 years in laying the foundation of truth for a culture that is snowballing out of control we've said, well, we don't want to be a part of that, so what we've done is we've cocooned ourselves off from society, and instead of really handling the heavier issues of truth that truly do define civility and reality in life, we don't want to touch those things with a 10-foot pole. Not because we have uneducated clergy, but because we're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. Or because we're afraid... We're afraid that we will be rejected and attacked ourselves. Yes? Are you guys with me? Did I just make it sure? Famed author, British author by the name of Samuel Johnson, said these words Dishonor waits on perfidy. What does that mean? That's a fancy word that means dishonesty. So let's put it in that terms. Dishonor waits on dishonesty. <clears throat> then he goes on to write a man should blush to think a falsehood. A man should blush, or a woman. This was old British, you know? A man should blush to think a falsehood. It is the crime of cowards. Do you hear what he's saying? To lie, to even think of a lie, is the crime of a coward. If I were to ask you today, have you ever told a lie? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I will be the first to admit I have. I'll be the first to admit I've said a partial truth. I'll be the first to admit I said 99.9% of the truth. What do we have people on the witness stand do? Declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? Isaac, the son of Abraham, the long-awaited son, Abraham and Sarah had this son together. She had been barren for all these years. Abraham was old according to his wife's testimony But they had this son, finally. The promised and awaited one. Through whom God said would come other descendants that would outnumber the stars of the sky. Now Abraham has died. Isaac now is on the scene. We go past these narratives of God telling Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt burnt offering on the hills of Mount Moriah. We go past all of that stuff. The chapter before Jacob and Esau are born to Rebekah, his wife. And here we find Isaac traveling in the same region his father did some 75 to 80 years before. In the land of Gerar, which is the land of the Philistines later on in the narrative under David, Saul, and David. And there is a king there by the name of Abimelech. Not likely the king that Abraham had encountered. Abimelech was more than likely a title, like Caesar Augustus or Pharaoh, okay? Because we read countless times throughout Genesis and even all the way into the books of Kings and Chronicles the word Abimelech being used. It seems to be more of a title of kingship or or tribal leader than it does an actual name. So now there's a new Abimelech who's arisen the throne in Isaac's time. And there's a great famine that's now struck the land. Hey, history repeats itself. Because that's where Abraham was as well when famine struck the land. Now, the first time, Abraham went to to Egypt. Isaac is considering to follow in his father's footsteps, but God has other plans. And God comes to Isaac and says, whoa, 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 don't want you to go to Egypt. Stay stay put. And then he reinstitutes this covenant agreement, the promise that he'd made with Abraham, his father. Listen to this. A severe famine struck the land as it happened before Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. So the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. How many of you, when you were kids, or if you're kids now, like to hear your parent telling you, do as I tell you? (laughs) How many of you, there's this innate desire within you to say, oh, heck no, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Right? That's called the sin nature, just in case you're curious. That's not just you being independent. That is a stubborn streak rooted in the sin nature. If God comes to you and says, Do not do this, do what I tell you. What should you do? Your stark silence is bewildering. (laughs) You should do what he tells you to do. Why? Because as we've already established, he is the truth. We also know that he is love. So love and truth together. Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Do you like to be a foreigner in somebody else's land? Literally or figuratively speaking? When Sarley and I moved here with our family and uprooted from Dayton, Ohio, we had been foreigners there before we became regular Daytonites. I guess that's what you call it, Dayton, Ohio. We moved here. Guess what we were? We were. And in some cases, we still feel that way from time to time, just being honest. But 10 years later, we do feel a part of the community. But there are times, let's be honest, when people come into the land, they are foreigners and we treat them as such. Different sermon topic for a different time. Just thought I'd point that out. But they were foreigners in that land. It's uncomfortable to be a foreigner. It just is. You don't know the land, the people, the territory. You've got to learn all of this stuff afresh and anew. And you hope that it's going to be a forgiving land and a loving people. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. See, if there's any doubt in Isaac's mind whether or not he should stay there, God's already said, I'm going to do this for you. Just as I was with your father, I'm going to be with you. Here's the deal. Do not live here as a foreigner. I'm going to bless you. That takes an awful lot of trust, doesn't it? Sure it does. I hereby confirm that I will give these lands to you and to your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. Solemn, serious. I'm not joking with you. That's kind of what that means, solemnly promised. I sincerely promised this. I wasn't joking around when I told Abraham this. And so now that promise passes on to you, his descendant, and will pass on to your descendants as well. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky and I will give them these lands. Where? What lands? The ones that he is now a foreigner in. Now this is If we want to get to the topic of imperialism and all of that junk, that's not really what's going on here. What's going on here is God saying, this land will someday be your descendants' land, and you are my people. You are the people of the promise. And as people of the promise, go all the way back to Genesis 12, what does God tell Abraham that the rest of the nations of the world will become, through him, blessed? Keep that in mind. Put that right in the back of your memory banks because we're going to come back to that. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky and I will give them these lands and through your descendants the nations of the world or the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. (laughs) There's a toughie. Do you catch what he just said there? I will do this because of your father's faithfulness to me, not because of yours. Because Isaac is now carrying the promise. Is he gonna be trustworthy? I'm gonna find out. See, Abraham was far from perfect. We know that time and time again, he blundered in following the Lord's commands. He lied about his wife twice, he went ahead and gave in to the temptation from his wife to take her servant Hagar to sleep with her to have a child with her because maybe that's what God really wanted, but it wasn't. I mean, so there's all of this junk in Abraham's life, but what does God say about Abraham? I will do this for you, Isaac, because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So here's what I learned from this. As much as I learned from any other biblical character who remained faithful to God, faithfulness doesn't mean perfectness. Hear me out on this. Faithfulness means continuing in the direction of God in spite of your failures. Do you understand that? When you fall down in a royal mistake which we call sin or when you do what God says not to do or don't do what he tells you to do that is also called sin that will separate you from God you will stay in a separated condition if you stop and stay in that sin you will stay in a separated condition from God if you decide that you're done Faithfulness means proceeding in the direction of God in spite of your failures. Yes, in full repentance, saying, Lord, I messed up. I did what you said not to do, or I didn't do what you said to do. Please forgive me, but you're continuing to march in His direction. Do you catch what I'm saying? Okay. So now He's telling Isaac, I'm doing this because of your dad. He was faithful to me. I love that man. He was faithful. And Isaac, I love you. And because of the love I had for your father and the trust I placed on your father, and because he listened to me, I'm giving you that promise. Are you going to be trustworthy? So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Gerar. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, he said, (laughs) what did he say? Now, this legitimately is a complete and wholehearted, 100% lie. She was his cousin. I'm not kidding. But she wasn't his sister. Right? So when Abraham wanted a, a wife for his son, Isaac, he sent one of his servants to their old family land. Pick a first cousin or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> this is before the law of Moses and before the laws of incest came into play. Just keep that in mind, okay? They weren't breaking the law yet. We'll get into that some other time. They said, hey, tell us about Rebecca. Oh, um, she's my sister. He was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought... They will kill me to get her because she's so beautiful. This is such a cool thing about the first Jewish men, loving their wives and thinking they are the most, and husbands, you should better think your wife is the most beautiful woman to you than any other woman on the face of the earth. That is a compliment that Abraham and Isaac had toward their wives, even though they royally messed it up and put them in harm's way. (laughs) I know it's really weird, but we do this, right? So he said, um, she's really pretty, somebody might want to get her, so um, she's my sister, to save his own butt. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of his window, now typically, the palaces of kings and tribal leaders were up on what they call a tell, T-E-L, and a tell is basically where there were cities that started at ground level, and that that city got conquered by another warring tribe, and they built another city on top of it, and then there was another warring faction that came in, and they built another city on top of it. And So you go to the, the ancient lands today, you'll see these hilltops that look almost man-made. A lot of them are now ruins, and you start to excavate, and you find layer after layer multiple different cultures and cities and time periods. Why? Because they just built over the top of the, of the other city. And so in Gerar, more than likely, even if it was one of the early uh, early places, um, the king's palace would have had high points where they could view the whole region, right? And so now we get Abimelech who's looking out the window. Guess what he sees? A public display of affection. A PDA. Let's check it out. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and he saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Some of your versions don't even, they, they soften it, okay? The word in Hebrew means to fondle. No joke. And you can let your, my, what does fondling mean? Look it up in a dictionary if you don't know what that means. This is kind of, I'm trying to keep this as rated G as possible in this context. But he is fond, this is not sisterly, brotherly hugs, Right? You wouldn't caress your sister like this. And so likes. what the heck is he doing? And I'm sure his voice sounded like that, but in Hebrew, hakalaka, chakalaka. I don't know Hebrew that well. Verse nine. Immediately. He didn't wait till the next day. He didn't wait till later in the day. He's looking at his window and he sees, him, he sees Isaac fondling Rebecca in a way that is not common between siblings. And he immediately does something. He called for Isaac. I'm, I'm, it's a good question. Did he send a servant? He called for Isaac. I'm guessing he sees them from the palace window he says, Isaac, I don't think he, wait. it says immediately, he didn't call hey, servant, go down and get them for me. I think he called from the window, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore all that? no, it's Isaac, what are you doing? Isaac, she's obviously your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Now, if you're screaming them out of a palace window into an open city, maybe they're in a garden somewhere. They think they're being discreet. Do you think any onlookers or walkers by might be curious as to what's going on there? They've been found out. Why did you say she's your sister? Well, because I was afraid someone might kill me and get her from me. Isaac replied. And then he's rebuked by Abimelech. How could you do this? One of my people might easily have taken your wife and slept with her. Tells you what kind of culture there was, right? And you would have made us guilty of a great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. Do you note the tinge of irony here that Isaac is the man of promise and yet he is the one who is untrustworthy and this pagan king Abimelech is the one who reminds Isaac of the truth. It's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Key point is God's patience extends beyond our doubt. God's patience extends beyond our doubt. We struggle, we doubt God at times. How do we doubt God? Well, we doubt God when we allow fear to creep into life. We are never to have fear. The only, and I'll keep saying this till the day I die, the only fear that we are allowed is the holy, reverent fear of God. Why? Why? Because he truly is the one in power and authority, our maker, our creator, the one who is due reverence and honor. He is the one who holds our life in his hand. Remember what Jesus says? Don't fear the one who could take the body, but rather the one who could take the soul and the body and cast it into hell. Can anybody in this room take your soul or your body and cast you into hell? No. So why do you fear? There is one who deserves that holy and reverent awe and wonder and fear and worship. And it's God and God alone. And yet, the problem is the enemy does a great job of deception by getting us to look at our neighbor and say they're the ones we should fear. They are truly the enemy. I've always said this too, and it's not common to me, it's something I've read in a book. There is an enemy, and it's not your neighbor, it's not your spouse, it's not your child, it's not the other political party. There is an enemy. The enemy does an amazing job at getting us focused on each other as being the enemy rather than the real enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy See, this is how he divides churches. This is how he thwarts the plans of God, is getting God's people focused on the wrong battle with the wrong people at the wrong time. There is a battle going on. It is a spiritual battle. Yes, it plays itself out in this reality we live in. And we can be unwitting advocates of the enemy if we're not careful. Do you remember the episode with Jesus and his disciples? And Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm, I'm going to be arrested and led away, and uh, I'm going to die. And Peter, bold of mouth but weak of spirit oftentimes, says, Lord, we forbid it. That will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Whew, get behind me who? That's a toughie. I've been called a lot of things in my life. Don't ever recall being called Satan. But the reality is, we can be unwitting advocates of the enemy, playing on the enemy's team, doing his bidding without realizing it when we get our focus on the fear of man rather than the holy reverence and awe of God. This is where doubt creeps in. Doubt is directly tied to fear. Do you hear me? Because it's when we fear that we do irrational things not rooted in truth. And this is the point. Trust in God and fear of man cannot coexist. I had to chew on that this week before I actually made that a point. Actually, it's been a point, but I had to chew on it again this week. Is, is that, I try, and let me be honest with you, when I make points or key points, I have to really reason through them carefully and pray through them. God, is this an absolute? So when you make an absolute statement, is it truly absolute? And this is one of those questions I had this week. Is this a truth statement that trust in God and fear of man cannot coexist? And yes, that would be a truth statement. You cannot fear man and have trust in God. What are the things you fear? If I walked around the room and said, What are some of the phobias you have? And it may not just be fear of man, it may be fear of inanimate objects, right? What do you fear? What are some of the biggest worries of your life? Do you worry about losing your life? And I'm not here, understand I'm not advocating willy-nilly behavior, just going out and jumping out of every airplane with a parachute on your back, expecting it to open up every time you jump, right? I mean, you would hope it would. But you get what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying be, be foolish with your life, go out and take stupid chances with your life, but what I am asking you is, do you fear losing your life? And the question is, if you do, Why? We don't like to talk about death, but we're surrounded by death on a regular basis, and the question truly should be, do you know the Lord Jesus as savior of your life? Because in him there is life and redemption and hope for the life eternal everlasting. So if you were to die today, this is not an evangelism explosion thing, please understand, right? If you were to die today, are you secure enough in who you are and in whose you are that you're okay? I wasn't okay with that, and I was honest with you about this a few years ago until I read a book that truly kind of opened my eyes to the realities of heaven. It's not that I was afraid that I was uh, not a believer, but I was really sorry. I don't want to leave. What about my kids? I want to be able to walk them down the aisle. I want to be able to see them take their first fill-in-the-blank. I read this book. In my early 40s, yes, I'm actually on the crest of the latter part of the 40s now, very sad. Um, that, I, that totally revolutionized the way I look and think about death. Because it helped me to understand that if I have full trust in God, even if I die, I can trust him with my family. See, the the falsehood is, I believe that I can control my family's safety. (laughs) The deception of the enemy would be, you need to hold on and control everything in life. How many of you have tried to control circumstances in your life and have come up short every time? See, we live in a world today, and I could tell you, I can tell you society, if you look at, the, look at multiple cultures across the face of the earth, yes, they should all be ruled by the rule of law, so understand, I'm not saying there should be a lawless society out there, but societies that have less freedoms and more control, I would almost guarantee they are bound by the deception of the enemy. To take the freedom out of the hands of people is not what God ever instituted. But see, the enemy likes to give you this this idea that God is the one who's this rule monger, who wants to throw all these heaping rules on your head. But if you go back and you look through all of scripture, God is the most loving, freeing, and gives you a choice God than any other false God the world has ever known. See, the other gods of pagan societies had to be appeased or you would get the wrath. Well, what about the wrathful God of the Old Testament? I dare you to read the whole Old Testament because the people that throw the wrathful God of the Old Testament up in my face are typically ones who've never read it. They've only heard other people talk about it. It's the same God of love in the New Testament that's in the Old Testament if you have eyes to see and truly look for yourself. See, the deception of the enemy would have you believe that God is one who lords over. But the question is, wouldn't you want him to? Who else would you rather be lord of your life? That's a good question. If not God, then who? Most people outside of Christianity would probably say, well, me, of course. Good question, right? Well, why is that so wrong? Why can't I be Lord of my own life? Are you perfect? So you're telling me you would rather have an imperfect person ruling your life than someone who is perfect and holy and loving and good? Let's be honest. I'm not trying to be mean, but the reality is if you choose any other Lord but the God of all creation who truly did create everything and knit you together in your mother's womb... If you choose any other god but him, you're choosing a false god or a lie. Even if you choose yourself as your own ruler. Well, I I know for myself what is best for me. Greatest deception of the enemy of all time. Did God really say, Eve, that if you eat of the fruit of the garden that you'll die? Now, that's a partial lie or a partial truth, however, half empty, half full. So God never said you can't eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden. He said you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. Because she knew that. She said, No, no, no. God said I can't eat of this or even touch it or I'll die. No, you're not going to die, Eve. You're not going to die. See, God knows if you partake of that, it you'll become like him, knowing both good and evil. See, he doesn't want you to become like him. The greatest lie of the greatest enemy. Because what were Adam and Eve created in? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them, male And female, he created them. Oh, that's just a bunch of gobbledygook. It's a mythical story. I would contend it's not mythical. I would contend that is the stark reality, not only of that time, but of our age. And it's not about gender. It's about the image of God. God. And when you truly are living into the image of God in your life, you live into the true reality of your identity. When you become Lord of your life, you create your own identity, and it becomes honestly your demise. What do you think is happening in our society? What do you think is happening globally right now? And I'm not talking about a freedom convoy in Canada. I'm talking about the truth of what's happening in the world right now in any continent on the face of this globe, maybe even Antarctica. Because you do have people down there and where you have people, you have opportunity for truth or lies. Trust in God and fear of man cannot coexist. Isaac had to find this out the hard way by being caught in a lie. The promise bearer of God is the one who had to be called out for lying. How many of our professional gurus and theologians and apologists and pastors have you noticed over the past five to 10 years saying one thing here and doing another thing here? And what we would traditionally call in the old Bible Belt, falling from grace, backsliding, There's nothing new under the sun. It just replays itself out in different generations. And the Lord gives us opportunity after opportunity as each generation arises and each new individual comes onto the scene. Are you going to believe in the truth or the lie? Are you going to believe in Christ or the Lord of the lies? And I said this point last week, the last point today is fear drives deception. So fear of man and trust in God cannot coexist, but where a fear exists, deception subsists, or persists, I should say. Where fear exists, deception persists, because fear drives us to doubt, and doubts are lies. I didn't mean for this to be overtly or overly philosophical today, but the reality is until we get this truth down, we're going to keep, continue to repeat the pattern of insanity of sin and death generation after generation. Are we going to perfect it this side of heaven? Heck no. This is why we have churches and people who continue to be imbued with the anointing of God to preach, to teach, to love, not perfectly, but pointing to a perfect God who is more than they could ever conceive. This is why churches falter is because they put stock in a regular man or woman of God rather than in the God of that man or woman. Does it make sense? Okay. This is why when pastors leave churches to go to another church or something, you see a wave of turnover in the church. How sad is that reality? Now, if that church is not preaching the truth of the word of God and pointing to the God who is truth, then you should find a church that is, okay? But if there is Bible-believing, truth-telling, pointing you to the Lord of lords and King of kings, then why leave if you're just following a person? Fear drives deception. Alan Ross explains that Isaac, like Abraham, received God's great promise, but in fear he deceived Abimelech and made a mockery of the promised blessing. This is where I said we'd get back to. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12 and now Isaac in Genesis 26 that through his descendants all the nations of the world would be blessed? Was this a blessing to Abimelech and the Philistines? See, God said, I don't want you to go to Egypt. I want you to stay here as a foreigner and I will bless you. But as I bless you, basically what God is saying is you will become a blessing to the nations. How is he blessing Abimelech and the Philistines by lying to them? How are we as the church or the church in our culture blessing the culture by lying to them? So you can go to any number of churches on any street in USA America today and get any version of truth you want, let's be honest, because not every church is speaking biblical truth today. And I'm not gonna call out names, but the reality is some questionable tactics have come into play from the pulpits across our nation and quite frankly across our globe. How do I know which ones are telling the truth and which ones aren't? You have to take ownership of your faith. See, the only reason Paul in his writings could say, follow me as I follow Christ is because he was following Christ. If you have anybody say, follow me as I follow the latest trend or as I follow the latest high-sounding nonsense or empty philosophy, Colossians chapter 2? Because it is so convincing, I want that to be truth. How many of us want certain things to be true that aren't? Have you ever been there? I have, if I'm being honest. There are certain things I want to be true that aren't, and there are certain things I don't want to be true that are. Because I have convinced myself that I would be better off if that were the reality. And then it circles back to, am I Lord of my life? Or is God? Fear drives deception. Deception of the mind. It leads us down paths of belief that lead us into territory of destruction if we're not careful. Not only is fear rooted in deception as we learned from Abraham's lie in Genesis 20, but fear feeds deception. And deception feeds fear. They go hand in hand. See, fear thrives on it. It's the fer- Deception is the fertilizer of fear. And vice versa. Now you may not be lying to anybody overtly, but maybe you're lying to yourself by the thoughts you place in your head. Have you ever said, and I've said this before because I say it to myself, have you ever said, I'm an idiot? Have you? Have you ever said to yourself, I'm so stupid. Have you ever said, I'm never going to amount to anything? Because maybe you were told that by somebody. Or maybe you weren't told those exact words, but they were enough to steer you in that direction. How many of you are driven by the fear of rejection so much so that you lie to yourself saying you're not worth it anyway? See, fear drives deception and deception drives fear. And we perpetuate a lie in our heads. The image bearers of God. Now, I've made this distinction before. Not everybody is a child of God. That's another lie that's perpetuated from the pulpits across this world. And it's not that I'm trying to be mean or hateful, but the reality is when you read the word for what it's worth, children of God are those who have fully surrendered their lives to Christ. Hear me out those who have surrendered themselves to truth incarnate, to the embodiment of true, unadulterated, agape love. Those are the ones who are free. If the truth has set you free, what are you? And who is the truth? Jesus. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Do you catch how the Bible is not just a bunch of stories just thrown together, this is a book written by over 40 different authors in over three different continents, over 1,500 years span. How many of you have been alive that long? And it it has withstood the most powerful critics the world has ever known. And the true, most powerful critics, when they are willing to truly dissect the word of God for what it's worth, guess what they find out? They climb that mountain of deception and they get to the peak and they see all the terrain around them and realize, oh my gosh, this is true. There are great atheists and philosophers out there who are secular philosophers, and the name fails me. Some of you may even know this, this, this quote and who said it, but one of these great thick secular philosophers once said, my greatest fear is that we will climb this mountain of knowledge only to get to the crest and realize that there were theologians there all along. It was the greatest fear for him that they had been living a lie all that long, and only to come to realize that if they just believed the Word of God. One final thought before I have our worship team come forward is this Is there fear in heaven? Are there lies in heaven? No, our souls are laid bare in heaven. Nothing is hidden there, everything is illuminated, everything is transparent. We know as we are fully known in heaven. There can be no fear in that place. So I I contend, if fear is a part of your life now, but you weren't created for fear, and the eternal reality of where you, I would hope, desire to be is heaven, and the only way to get there is through Christ, and you're living with a reality. Say you maybe even have made the decision to accept Christ and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior but you still hold on to doubt and fear, but you weren't made for that, what are you doing? Some of you need to be set free, if I'm being honest. I mean, I need to be as well, in certain cases. There are times that I pick up doubt and fear. I'm like Peter, who jumps out on the water, woo, this is great, until I realize, whoa, what have I done? I can't walk on water. that's the reality. It's not that we so much doubt God. It's oftentimes we doubt ourselves and what God can do through us. See, you get your eyes on the wind and the waves. It's when doubt creeps in. You get your eyes on your internal turmoil, the difficulties that you face day in and day out. When you start to face the fear head on, With the truth of God, you can conquer that fear. But if you're facing fear and succumbing to it, you've given in to the tactics of the enemy. There is no fear in heaven. We are not created to fear. Fear is the twisted result of disobedience. Fear forces us to hide. It forces us to cover up. It forces us to step outside the norms of God's purposes and will for our lives. We are told by psychologists that fear is the body or the mind's response to danger, and this is a means to keep us alive and alert. However, in the perfectness of the Garden of Eden, there was no danger and definitely nothing of which to be afraid. We are not just some random animal animal makeup, a different subspecies of the earth. We are image bearers of God who created us as a crowning glory of his love and of his creation. There is nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. All is well and all is good and all was true in the garden. And we are striving to attain that reality yet again and Christ made a way for us to achieve that reality and without him we're just boxing at the air. As our worship team comes forward, I I quoted this verse last week, I'm going to quote it one more time. 1 John 4, 18 There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. The same author who wrote first second and third John wrote the gospel of John and what does he say in John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life that word believe is not just an intellectual thought it is a living reality acting it out on a daily basis There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear 1 John 4:18 who is love? John also tells us in 1 John twice that God is love. So basically, there is no fear in God, but perfect the perfect God casts out fear. For fear has to do with, this is what I said earlier, punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You were in the process of being perfected if you allow yourself to be. There is no fear in love. See, fear has to do with punishment. What are you you worried about? What what fears are you struggling with right now? What has held you back from totally surrendering to Christ? Are you going to have to change the groups you hang around with? You're going to have to change some of your behavior to align with God's purposes? Are are you going to have to actually admit that you've done some things wrong? There's fear in that. See, it's easy when we can hold all of it in, and nobody knows what's going on in the inner turmoil, but confession of that sin brings freedom. True fear closes us in and keeps us in jail. But Jesus came to set the captives free. Are you captive this morning? Who cares what anybody else around you thinks? God loves you. I know he does. The reason I'm up here this morning is because I believe it. There is nothing in this world that will ever change my mind. And I mean that sincerely. Though others may fall away, I know that I know that I know that even when I don't understand, he is truth, he is good, he is God. He is love. And though I may not understand the dry periods of life I'm going through, the struggles I have to face, and sometimes even ask, God, where are you? I always circle back to this one phrase I heard years ago in the midst of a very difficult time. And it was a still, small voice that said, Do you trust me? Yes, God, I trust you. I don't understand right now, but I trust you. Our altars are always open. I'm begging you today, if you are not a believer in Christ, what are you waiting on? Come to know the one who created you in his image and come to know your true image and identity in him. You want prayer today, you come to my right, your left, over here. Those of you at home, kneel at your couch, your chair, your kitchen table, wherever you are, and say, Lord, I don't understand everything there is to know. I don't know why I'm facing X, Y, or Z, but God... The way I've been doing it is not working. And so I surrender. (laughs) I surrender all. I don't know what the next step is, but God, I know you do, and so I'm all in. I don't profess that it's going to be perfect or that I'm going to know everything to do at every given moment, but God, I know you know, and as I trust in you, you'll show me each and every step. To see, this isn't a service only for the non-believer. It's a service for those who desire to know God more intimately. To say, I've been stagnant in my faith. I'm like a wave tossed about by the sea sometimes, and I need an anchor. <laughs> oh, Lord, I need an anchor. The only true anchor is the anchor that God gives through his resounding truth and love for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this place, we honor you as the truth bearer, the one who knows us inside and out, the one who knows our deepest and darkest secrets and every thought that goes through our mind. And God, in spite of all of that, you still love us. You still were willing to sacrifice your one and only son so that we could come to know the truth of who you are and who we truly should be. Forgive us of our sin, Father. I ask in your holy name that you would cast out all doubt and all fear from this room. Heavenly Father, In the name of Jesus and through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would set the captives free this morning. Break the chains of sin and death that have so held on to the lives of people in this place, maybe even this place itself, so that this place and space can become a house of prayer, free from merchants, money changers, anybody who would seek to destroy what you desire to build. And Satan, we put you on notice. (laughs) Rarely do I ever call you out from this space at this time. But in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. You have no power or control over these people, over this space or this place. I renounce you in the name of Jesus, and I cast you out in the name of Jesus. The Lord, have your way in this place this morning. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.